Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, Just subscribe to our channel there. You can also uh, find us on iTunes using your favorite podcast catcher. Just make sure to check the box to search uh, the iTunes database. Uh, You can find both the audio and the video uh, of all the previous podcasts. Uh, Just click on the top menu bar on the website that says podcast, and you can find them there. If you want to send me a message, a question, a word of encouragement, uh, you can do that. Uh, you can send those messages to jason at logicalbelief.org. Mark your calendar. Jersey Fire is July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. The topic, the Word of God. The speakers, Matt Slick from Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Justin Peters from Justin Peters Ministry, and Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. Jersey Fire will equip you to talk to the lost and then put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. Jersey Fire, July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. For details, go to jerseyfire.org. Well, already uh, today I've been uh, I keep trying to get this podcast off and I'm <laughs> having a little bit of trouble uh, getting it done. It's one of those days where you just don't quite feel prepared, uh, but uh, we're going to jump into this and we're going to give it a shot. Uh, what we're going to be covering today um, is uh, two things. Uh, first of all, uh, the first part of the podcast today, I want to cover um, an individual who uh, had challenged uh, Dr. James White on a debate uh, by the name of Eric Lounsbury, and uh, and I had interacted with him a little bit on Twitter. And uh, when he originally uh, interacted with uh, James White, uh, he uh, claimed that uh, James White had refused to debate him. And uh, so there was a little bit of an exchange there, and uh, he said he had talked to, uh, I believe, Rich Pierce over at Alpha and Omega Ministries, uh, James White's ministry, and said that he had given Rich Pierce um, an unprecedented, uh, what, what is the word that he used here, make sure, yes, his unprecedented refutation of Calvinism, and uh, that uh, Rich Pierce, I guess, was just completely stumped by uh, the question that he posed to him. So I had tweeted uh, Mr. Eric Lounsbury and uh, asked him if his argument is unprecedented and is so amazing, uh, if he would publicly make that available instead of just saying what an amazing argument it is. So James White uh, did address uh, Eric in the last dividing line, and I would encourage you to listen to that. However, um, James did not necessarily (laughs) actually cover his argument really in detail. So I wanted to do that today, Um, not in detail, but to just, you know, look over it briefly to see if there's any merit to his argument at all and to see if uh, how, you know, how we would answer uh, Mr. Eric's objection to Calvinism. Uh, One of our purposes here at Logical Belief is to defend Uh, that God has the right as the sovereign creator of the universe to save for his own eternal glory without asking for permission from any of his creatures. And so whenever the pure gospel of grace um, is attacked by anyone, uh, we want to make a defense of that. And so uh, we will attempt to do that today. Um, So, what I'll, I will do is I will link in today's show notes um, on the podcast a link to this uh, unprecedented argument against Calvinism. And uh, we will uh, briefly look here and examine to see how unprecedented it really is. Um, so let's just uh, jump into it here. I'm not going to go ahead and just read this entire thing. Uh, you can do that if you want to. Um, he goes into the first part of his of his post that he put here on Twit Longer. Uh, Mr. Eric uh, put uh, some stuff trying to defend his claim that this is unprecedented. Um, the, the one thing I have to say is just upon reading it, uh, this is not a new argument whatsoever. Um, I've never heard anybody use this particular text for this argument. 
Um, I think there's actually better text. I'd like to help Mr. Eric out. I think I could improve your argument a little bit. Um, but um, uh, let's let's uh, just we'll, we'll jump into it uh, here in a little bit. But I do want to point out one thing, which is very common uh, among arguments against the doctrines of grace, is that uh, often it's misrepresented. And once again, Mr. Eric did do a misrepresentation of the doctrines of grace uh, in one portion here of his article. And I just want to read that section and then I'll deal with his his regular argument, his his argument. And so the the first thing here is his he writes, and this is probably uh, more than halfway down. Uh, well, actually, probably about uh, two thirds of the way down uh, through his article. Uh, he says, if Calvinism is true, uh, then, well, actually, I'll tell you what, before I read that section, let me just read the previous paragraph so you kind of get a little bit of the context here, and then uh, we'll deal with it. So uh, he gives us a little analogy here, which I find actually kind of humorous, but uh, he begins here, he says, suppose after Lazarus has died, his sisters, Mary and Martha, were getting ready to have the stone rolled in front of the tomb to seal his grave, while he lay there dead, yet just before they put the stone in place, Mary notices that someone had left a loaf of bread on the floor of the tomb. So she goes and picks it up, stating, oh my, I need to be sure to take this. Martha responds by asking why. Mary replies, oh Martha, seriously, why would you ask such a silly question? Obviously, we don't want Lazarus to eat it. Martha looks puzzled and walks out, not knowing how to respond. Then Mr. Eric uh, goes on to say, if Calvinism is true, then, like Martha, I have no idea how to respond to this passage. After all, he's speaking about Luke chapter 8 and the parable of the sowers, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But after all, if men are dead in sin, like Dr. White and other Calvinists teach, then why would Satan need to steal the seed out of their heart? Can dead men eat bread? If they can't eat bread, how can they eat the seed? After all, they are dead. Yet Jesus, the very Son of God, manifest in the flesh, states that he knows the reason why Satan steals the word out of their hearts. He says it is to prevent them from believing and being saved. What? How is this possible? Does Jesus need to attend classes on Calvinism to get his theology corrected? And he goes on um, with uh, some other uh, completely irrelevant questions like that. So, once again, <laughs> as it always happens, uh, the doctrines of grace get misrepresented again. Total inability is about our inability and our deadness in sin is in relation to or is, is about our relationship to God. It is the vertical. We are dead in sin. We only desire, have desire for our own autonomy, for our own self-pleasure and not the eternal glory of God. Our purpose is is not as as sinners is not to give God any glory and not to do anything for his purposes and his will but to accomplish our own will and our own purposes so when we say man is dead we're talking about he's dead in his relationship to God he has he cannot please God he cannot do that which is pleasing to God Romans uh, 8 verse 7 and 8 those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so when we say men are dead, we're not saying that they don't react to the gospel at all. In fact, we're saying they react negatively to the gospel. And so if, if you're going to play with your analogy here, uh, and a man is dead, and the bread here offered is the gospel, what does man do? He kicks it. He, re, he, he picks it up and throws it. He, he has no interest in it whatsoever. He negatively responds to the gospel. Um, people will always negatively respond to the gospel unless they have, their heart and their nature has been changed, unless they've been born again, unless they're given a new nature, because only those, those who are in the flesh alone cannot do that which is pleasing to God. Scripture is very clear on this. So this is just a misrepresentation again. We don't say that men don't have any response to the gospel. They don't have any response to God. Yes, man always negatively responds to it and never positively and truthfully responds to the gospel. Now, he may 
man may in his sinful, unregenerate state may make a false profession of the gospel for purposes that are only for himself and not for God. He may respond to the gospel because uh, he has uh, uh, maybe some guilt uh, for his sin and he feels bad. Um, and so he does it because he maybe wants to go to heaven and doesn't want to go to hell. Maybe uh, there's there's lots of different motivations that men can have for why they uh, might make an initial profession of faith, but no one in his heart has a true faith and trust in the saving work of Christ and does so for the glory of God and does so because he wants to bring God the glory that is due to God's name just as creator alone. And we glorify God and we we love God because he loved us, because he sent his son to die for us. Uh, we are overwhelmed as Christians by the love that God has demonstrated to us in the giving of himself for our salvation. And so that particular response does not come from the dead heart of an unregenerate sinner. They will respond only negatively to that call of the gospel, that external call of the gospel. So let's actually get into his argument here. So basically, I'll summarize his argument here. His argument basically is, in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower, which all of you guys are, I'm sure, familiar with the parable of the sower, so I'm not even going to read that. But after Jesus has given the parable of the sower, in Luke chapter 8, verse 9, it says, When the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So verse 12 is where he is, is basically the crux of his argument here. His argument is, um, if, if I can even pull it up here, I'll read it so I, I properly represent Mr. Eric's argument here. Uh, I think, uh, let's see here. Uh, number one, he says, Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one not only telling the parable, but explaining it. Thus, we conclude that he is correct in what he is teaching. The seed being sown is the word of God. Uh, number three, the devil comes to take the word out of the people's hearts. And four, he does so, so that they may not believe and be saved. And so he goes, are these the points agreed upon uh, by all who read this? I have supposed that they are because the points are exactly what Jesus said. Yet upon examination, one has to ask if Calvinism is true, then how in the world would this make sense? Here is why. I don't believe it can in case it is, I don't believe it can in case it is not already obvious. Since James loves to use the Lazarus story, um, let me also use it. Then he goes on to that previous paragraph where he talked about the bread and the tomb. So basically, to summarize his argument, he is, how is it that if these men are unable to believe, then why is it that um, the devil comes to take away the word out of the people's hearts so that they uh, may not believe and be saved? So let's read verse 12 again. The ones along the path are those who have heard, so they've heard the proclamation of the gospel, the external call of the gospel. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so they may not believe and be saved. Well, first of all, Eric, the intention here, so that they may not believe and be saved, is the intention of the devil with taking away the word of God from them. Do you believe, Eric, that the devil, and we as Calvinists, do you think we as Calvinists believe that the devil believes and understands the sovereignty of God and salvation? No, he doesn't. He denies it just like anyone else. Um, he, he doesn't believe that. He believes that if he takes away the gospel, that is the reason why people will not believe and be saved. Because he doesn't believe that it is God who sovereignly 
saves people of his own will whenever he desires to. Um, Satan doesn't believe that any more than uh, most <laughs> non-Calvinists or, or synergists do. Um, so the reason here that the seed is taken away by the devil is so they do, will not believe and be saved. But there's several major questions here for you, Eric. First of all, Eric, you are approaching this text with a, with a presupposition of man's free will. And you this is the underlying supposition that you're using to approach this text. Because this text is not one that I think you want to use to argue against Calvinism. You know, just making the recommendation here, but I don't think this is one that you want to use in a debate. Um, first of all, we have different soils which represent different people, which you acknowledge yourself. So can people change the, the, the type of soil they are? Can they change themselves from rocky soil to good soil? Can they change themselves from the path to the fertile soil? Can they say, change themselves from the thorny ground to the fertile ground? No, it is God who makes the soil within our heart. It is God who determines that, not man's autonomous free will. Um, the one thing here that I find very interesting, Eric, is your willingness here to allow Satan to take a man's free will. But you won't give it to God. You acknowledge here that Satan here seems to have this omnipotent ability to take away the gospel from the heart of man so that he won't believe by his own free will. But you won't give that to God. What's the reason for that? What's the reason that you'll give Satan that power, but you won't give it to God? Notice here that Eric was also acknowledging that Satan is sovereign over God's attempt to save an individual. Eric, you're making Satan sovereign over the will of God. Just as Luther said, Satan is God's lapdog. Satan does everything that God intends and wills for him to do. He purposes it for evil. God has a good intention for his own eternal glory within those acts. But Satan is completely within the control of God. Satan is not a sovereign entity that exists out there uh, for evil that has omnipotent power like God. He cannot circumvent God's will. The Bible is very clear that God does all that he pleases in the heavens and the earth, and God has declared the end from the beginning, and he accomplishes all he purposes. In Daniel chapter 4, uh, the wicked uh, king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had come to the knowledge of God, um, and it appears that he had repented, acknowledged the sovereignty of God. And he said, who can stay his hand or say, what have you done? God, the God of the Bible, is sovereign over Satan and sovereign over people and over his creation. And Satan is not sovereign over the attempt of God to save a person. Another question I would ask, if the will is free, and I don't even know how you defend autonomous libertarian free will, I guess the will determines itself. It's its own uh, cause, I guess. I, I'm not, I'd like to see you defend that. But uh, if the will is free and the will determines itself, and the will determines whether it accepts the gospel or not, why would Satan take away the gospel so that they don't believe? If it's the will here that's doing the determining. If the not believing has nothing to do with Satan but the will. The other question is, is why is man attracted to the temptation of Satan so as not to believe? Why is man, why are the ones that are represented by the path here, why are they attracted to the wiles of the devil, and why are they intrigued by his coming along and taking away the gospel that they have heard? Why are they willing to succumb to that particular temptation? That's the question you have to ask, Eric, is the, yourself, is, is, is man's will set into an indifferent position where he has the ability equally to choose that which is good as well as that which is bad? 
then why is he intrigued by Satan's temptation here? And why does Satan actually have the ability to take away the seed of the gospel from him so that he won't believe? Why does Satan have the ability to do that? Satan has the ability to do that because man's heart is naturally inclined due to his fallen state as sons and daughters of Adam who are fallen in Adam. They're naturally inclined towards the wiles of the devil. In um, uh, 2 Timothy um, is a passage that uh, I would encourage you to become familiar with, um, Eric. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, well, I'll start at verse 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice here, Eric, that for those to escape from the snares of the devil and for those to escape um, and come to their senses after being captured by the devil uh, to do his will, they must be granted repentance by God so that they will come to the knowledge of the truth. Men don't come to the knowledge of the truth in order that they will repent. They must repent in order to come to the knowledge of the truth. And it is a repentance that is granted by God. So, Eric, I don't think this is a passage. You know, I'm, I'm just making the recommendation. I don't think this is a text that you really want to take into a debate with James White or any other Calvinist. I think you need to reconsider. And I could make some recommendations for some other texts that you might want to work with. But I don't think this is one of them. Um, so, alrighty. Well, for those of you out there that um, uh, encountered arguments like that uh, before, um, maybe you're new into the doctrines of grace and coming to the understanding of Reformed theology and a clear understanding of the gospel of grace, and God's uh, own eternal right to save for his own eternal glory, um, that uh, there you will be attacked uh, often if you hold to this from uh, many postmodern Christians today. And, uh, and uh, I would just encourage you to, uh, to learn how to defend uh, what the Word of God teaches in this particular matter. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, to you. All righty, so what we're going to do next is, as promised, um, I am going to be covering today um, uh, some of the scientific evidence for young earth creationism. Um, in the previous episode, uh, I covered uh, the biblical foundation for young earth creationism and uh, what the text of Scripture actually says about this. And, you know, as Christians, as I mentioned in that particular podcast, as Christians, our presupposition should always be Scripture. And so we always want to establish the foundation from Scripture before we start examining anything else. And as we go through the presentation today, um, the one thing to, con to always be thinking about is uh, the presuppositions that people bring to bear when examining scientific evidence and when looking at evidence. What are the assumptions that they bring to bear and what worldview are they bringing to bear in order to examine the evidence? And we as Christians, we bring the Christian worldview to look at the evidence. And if we are accepting conclusions to scientific arguments that include the presupposition of a naturalistic worldview and doesn't include the presupposition of a Christian biblical worldview, then why are we accepting the conclusions to those arguments 
And that is a question that we need to ask ourselves when we begin to look at science. We have to look at the philosophical underpinnings to science and the philosophy of science and the naturalistic assumptions that people bring to bear uh, when they look at evidence. And I will try to point that out in several places as we go through uh, this presentation today. So as always, I'm going to make this presentation available in PDF format on the website if you're interested in that. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to transition my screen here uh, so that you can see uh, the presentation that I have here. And we're going to go ahead and jump into it. So those of you that are listening to uh, the podcast on iTunes, uh, I would encourage you to maybe watch it on YouTube uh, this time because of the presentation. I think it will be helpful um, in understanding uh, what we're going through today. Um, however, uh, I will do my best to uh, uh, do explanations uh, to make sure that the audience uh, listening to the audio only uh, will understand what's going on here. So let's go ahead and jump into the uh, presentation today. What we're going to mostly be focusing on today is um, carbon-14, uh, radiocarbon. And uh, we're going to spend, that's where we're going to spend uh today's podcast on is we're going to talk about this and uh, and we'll get into some subsequent podcasts we'll, we'll get into uh, some of the other evidences that line up and provide limiting factors to how old the earth actually is and uh, make it impossible for the earth to actually be the 4.5 billion years that evolutionists claim um, in some later podcasts, we'll go into some of the astronomical evidence um, that uh, puts limiting factors on the age of the universe, but this will be more a limiting factor today uh, on the age of the Earth itself. So we're going to uh, be looking mostly at carbon-14 today. So first of all, we're going to look at today what is carbon-14, what is C-14 or radiocarbon dating, and we'll look at uh, atmospheric C14 equilibrium. So those are basically the three topics we'll be looking at uh, today. So the first thing we want to look at here is uh, what is carbon-14? There are uh, a, a total of three different isotopes, which are uh, different. Uh, an isotope are different... Uh, uh, elements, particular elements that have uh, different um, atomic masses. And so with uh, carbon, we have carbon-12, which is the most common of uh, the carbon isotopes. We have carbon-13, which makes up about uh, roughly 1% of carbon. And then we have carbon-14, which makes roughly 1 in uh, 10 to the 12th uh, is the ratio to carbon-12 uh, of the carbon within uh, the atmosphere. And so uh, what we're going to look at is, first of all, how carbon-14 is created, what is known as radiocarbon, because carbon-14 is the only one of the three isotopes of carbon which is actually radioactive. In other words, it uh, will break down using the weak nuclear force. Uh, it will break down within a particular half-life. And we'll talk about what a half-life here is in a little bit. But uh, radiocarbon's half-life is uh, uh, 5,730 years. And, uh, and, uh, but first, before we do that, we have to look at how radiocarbon is actually created. So... Uh, C14 is constantly being produced in the lower stratosphere and upper troposphere when cosmic rays from the sun uh, generate neutrons by colliding with other atoms and an atom emits a neutron. And that neutron collides with a stable um, nitrogen isotope or nitrogen atom. And let me grab my uh, pen here and we've got... Um, this right here, we see a neutron here, 
uh, comes into collision with a stable form of the nitrogen atom. And what ends up happening, and I have a little bit of an animation here, what ends up happening, so we have the cosmic rays uh, generating neutrons which bombard a stable form of nitrogen. And what happens is that um, it causes it to eject a proton. Uh, and the different elements are determined by the amount of protons within the element. So notice here, for example, with nitrogen down below here, we have the lower number here. This is the amount of protons within the nitrogen atom, and it is 7. So when a neutron comes into collision with a stable form of uh, nitrogen-14, it ejects a proton, and it drops down to six protons, which is, a, is an element of carbon. Um, but what happens is it retains the neutron, uh, thus leaving the atomic mass still at 14. And so it ejects a proton. So what ends up happening is uh, this becomes an unstable form of carbon. So we have, as I said, we have carbon-12 and carbon-13, which make up the majority of carbon. But uh, we then end up, because of this uh, nitrogen-14, which once it gets hit with a neutron, uh, becomes an isotope of carbon, it ends up getting combined with oxygen to, to form um, standard, uh, the molecule uh, CO2, which is carbon and two oxygen atoms. Uh, and, and so what ends up happening is plants on the earth uh, take in carbon dioxide and they produce oxygen through the process of photosynthesis. So what ends up happening is that plants and vegetation on the earth end up developing an equilibrium. Uh, in other words, plants contain the same ratio of radiocarbon or carbon-14 to carbon-12 as the, what the atmosphere has because it takes in uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and uh, out of every um, trillion uh, carbon dioxide molecules, you will have one that is a carbon dioxide molecule that contains an atom of radiocarbon or C14. And so we have uh, a particular density of uh, radioactive carbon dioxide within uh, vegetation. And what ends up happening is that uh, herbivores you know, eat the vegetation, and so they develop an equilibrium. Uh, also, within, um, within their bodies that have uh, C14 in them, uh, at the same ratio at which the atmosphere in which they live in has. And then you have carnivores, which eat those herbivores, and they develop that equilibrium also. And then we as humans, we eat both plants and we eat uh, meat, which also has an equilibrium. So everything within that particular um radio or carbon reservoir end up developing an equilibrium to the environment around them. And so all organic matter ends up with, um, with the same amount of radiocarbon within them as the surrounding atmosphere or the surrounding reservoir in which they reside. So in other words, uh, for example, animals in the sea or um, fish and and uh, animals that reside in the ocean will also develop an equilibrium with their carbon reservoir, but it will be a little bit less than what the atmosphere is because um, the ocean does not contain quite as much radiocarbon as what the atmosphere does, and it actually has more on the surface than it does further down, but that's another discussion for another time. So that is how carbon-14 is created and how uh, it is within our atmosphere and how it um, becomes a part of organic uh, living uh, things on the earth. And so what happens, as I mentioned before, 
is that this carbon-14 is radioactive. It's not a stable isotope. So it's going to decay back into nitrogen-14, a stable form of nitrogen-14, at a particular half-life. And uh, that is noted here on this next slide here by here T, uh, T1 half here. So we see here that we have um, a radiocarbon here. And then within the half-life, it will decay uh, down to a stable form of nitrogen. And when it does this, um, it ejects an electron and also uh, an electron antineutrino, which is uh, antimatter. Uh, that gets uh, ejected when it does the radioactive decay. So when we have elements decaying back down to what is known as their daughter element, we have the parent element here, which is radiocarbon, C14. And so let's take a situation here where we have uh, eight molecules of radiocarbon and so that you can understand uh, what is going on here at the half-life and the half-life is the probability it's a mathematical probability at which half of a particular element will have decayed to its daughter element and so we see here within five uh, thousands seven hundred and thirty years radiocarbon will decay half of it there's the probability is that half of it will have decayed to its daughter element uh, nitrogen 14 so if we started off with eight uh, carbon 14 atoms within 500 uh, 5730 years we would end up with only four carbon 14 atoms Another 5,730 years, we would only have two. And another 5,730 years, we would only have one atom left. And um, after a total of 17,190 years, the probability would be that we would have no radiocarbon left. We would only have eight atoms of nitrogen-14. So... As you can tell here, because of this particular um, cycle, this gives us potential to possibly do some dating about how long ago something that is organic, that at some point was taking in radiocarbon from the atmosphere, we can do some calculations on that. And this is where radiocarbon dating comes from. So as I mentioned before, our atmosphere, the current equilibrium that is used for measuring, we'll talk about uh, some of the assumptions that go into here in a little bit, but uh, the current ratio uh, that is accepted for most radiometric dating is 1 to 1.5 C14 atoms per 10 to the 12th, which is 1 trillion C12 atoms. So for every... Uh, trillion carbon-12, the, the stable form of carbon atoms, there is going to be one C14 atom. And so animals and plants develop an equilibrium with the exchange reservoir in which they um, in, in which they exist. The equilibrium is also assumed. And this is uh, assumed using a philosophical view called uniformitarianism. It is assumed that the equilibrium level that we had pre-industrial revolution is the level of the, the ratio of radioactive carbon to stable carbon ratio has been the same into the past. And so that assumption then is brought to bear. So then it is assumed that whenever we measure the amount of radioactive carbon remaining within an organic uh, piece of material, uh, whether it's anything from leather uh, vellum uh, for dating manuscripts or papyri or maybe a bone uh, or a fossil that hasn't totally mineralized um, or, um, you know, a, a dead, buried uh, body that you find 
the the amount of C14 atoms that are found uh, within um, that particular uh, thing that you're trying to measure is is what is going to uh, determine on the age of that because what happens is when something dies it stops taking in C14 from the atmosphere so therefore it will lose its equilibrium it will lose the ratio it will start losing uh, those C14 atoms that are in that particular plant or organism uh, will start reducing because it's not being replenished by the atmosphere by the exchange reservoir in which it exists so we use something called accelerator mass spectrometry to uh, or we use mass spectrometry also but the the uh, more modern techniques is using the accelerator uh, which more precisely measures almost exactly uh, the amount of um, radioactive elements like C14 there are within a particular uh, material. And uh, we can, uh, using the assumption of present-day C14 levels, uh, we can date back something roughly back 55,000 years. And we can't really date anything back much further than that. Uh, so if anything contains a detectable amount, and this is very important, if anything contains a detectable amount of C14 atoms, then it must be, according to even the secular uh, timescale, and we're going to talk about this, even using the secular evolutionary assumption of an equilibrium that goes back in time and that stays uniform, um, anything that contains radiocarbon that when using accelerator mass spectrometry or a mass spectrometer, if we detect any radiocarbon, it has to be less than 55,000 years. And we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a little bit. But it has to be um, younger than 55,000 years if it contains any radiocarbon whatsoever. And that is even using uh, their own assumptions. So, to help you kind of understand the assumptions that uh, are brought to bear with this, I want to give a brief thought experiment on this. So, assume that you have uh, a bathtub, and um, I turn on the faucet, and I tell you that the faucet is currently putting water into the bathtub at 5 gallons per minute. Five gallons per minute is the rate at which the faucet is putting water into the bathtub. And I tell you another piece of information, that the tub currently has 20 gallons of water in it. My question then would be is how long ago did the tub begin to fill? Now if you do a quick little bit of math, you're probably going to come back and tell me the answer is four minutes ago. But here's the thing, you're wrong. And the reason that you're wrong is I failed to mention that the tub started with 10 gallons already in the tub. So notice how you have to assume something about the past in order to come to a conclusion about the age here. So in fact, I only started to fill the tub and only had turned on the faucet two minutes ago. If it started with 10 gallons and the faucet puts it in at 5 gallons per minute, um... Now, there's actually another assumption that goes in there. The other assumption is, is that the rate was constant also. That 5 gallons per minute was the rate at which uh, the water was flowing in one minute ago. Maybe it was only flowing at 2 gallons per minute one minute ago, but the present minute it is running, it is uh, filling the tub at 5 gallons per minute. So there are multiple assumptions that go into this particular calculation that have to be, you have to at least be aware of when looking at that. So, the thing that we have to be aware of when it comes to radiometric or radiocarbon dating is if we start with the assumption of the Bible, if we bring that assumption to bear, and that is what we as Christians should do, we should bring the Bible as our assumption to bear, then we don't believe that there has been an equilibrium of carbon-14 to carbon-12, uh, that a constant ratio going back 
um, eons of time. Because if we believe that God created according to the Bible, and I established this in the last podcast, and I'm not going to go through this again, but if we believe that the Bible is accurate in its time scale and accurate with the days of creation, as the Bible reveals it, then the atmosphere would have most likely been pristine when God initially created it. Now, I'm also making an assumption there. God could have created the atmosphere with already radiocarbon in the atmosphere. But if we start with the assumption that radiocarbon is only created by cosmic radiation uh, that would have started with day four of creation when God created the sun, um, if we start with that assumption and that that is when radiocarbon started to be created within the atmosphere, and we also recognize, and I didn't really create anything about this, but that the magnetic fields of the Earth were stronger in the past because magnetic fields are decaying on the Earth, and the magnetic field around the Earth is what protects the Earth from solar radiation. So if the magnetic field was stronger 6,000 years ago, which, which it was, um, at the current decay rate, if you play it back 6,000 years, the magnetic field would have been stronger 6,000 years ago. And by the way, that is another limiting factor to the age of the Earth, which we will talk about in a later uh, podcast on this. But that also means that the rate of radiocarbon creation early on after creation would have been less because of a stronger magnetic field. So the amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere would have been less shortly after creation. And since it would have been less, the plants and animals would have had a lower ratio uh, within them. Um, and so when they died, if, uh, if you would take a fossil that died shortly after creation, if, if, if some plant or something uh, was preserved that we can actually still have some of its organic matter still left it hasn't all mineralized that we can still measure the amount of radiocarbon in it then we would if we use present day ratios for c14 to 12 we would come up with a much longer date a much older date because the ratio at creation would have been much lower and so that's something that we have to recognize also if you notice here on the slide that I have here, if you notice that during the flood, I have some oscillations going in here with the radiocarbon ratio. Um, and that is because we suspect that during the flood, there was probably due to a lot of tectonic plate movement, that there was uh, probably quite a few oscillations within the magnetic field, which would have reduced the magnetic field and increased it. And so would have also caused the C14 creation to have been reduced. Also, the early atmosphere of the Earth may be at creation. Uh, the atmosphere may have been somewhat different. It, it might have been. It doesn't appear that it rained necessarily before the time of the flood. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it's likely it did not rain. It appears that a dew um, was what uh, watered the Earth uh, prior to the flood. So the atmosphere may have been different. Uh, and so if the atmosphere was is was somewhat different before the flood, uh, that would have also affected the, the rate of C14 uh, creation within the atmosphere due to cosmic radiation. So um, probably after the flood, the, the level of uh, or the rate of C14 creation probably jumped and is still increasing to the present uh, day. And so the present day ratio which we use um, is uh, would have been less in the past. So if we look at the evolutionary timeline, the evolutionist assumes that the Earth and its atmosphere is roughly around 4.5 billion years old. So there would have been an equilibrium easily for the last 6,000 years, which could also account so if you correct the, um, if you bring in the creation presupposition into radiometric dating, um, then the uh, measurement of the amount of radiocarbon in organic material would actually fit very close to the timeline of 6,000 years. If you take that the rate was less at creation and has increased until the present. 
and you cal bring that calculation into your radiometric uh, dating, then uh, the timeline fits very well with six to seven thousand years since creation. So another thing to be aware of um, because of the half-life of radiocarbon that if the entire earth was made up of C14 now this is based on my own calculations um, that uh, that I did before the show here that if the entire earth was made up of C14 so I found uh, uh, an article online which said how many atoms were in the uh, earth uh, that make up the the mass of the earth and so I just converted those to C14 atoms and then calculated so um, according to what I found is that there is 1.33 uh, times 10 to the 50th atoms in the world and I'm not even going to try to say that number but that is 1.33 followed by 50 zeros so there are a lot of atoms in in the world in the earth so if all of those atoms though were C14 atoms uh, radiocarbon atoms which would have a half-life of 5730 years um, after 168 half-lives there would there is none left there is no radiocarbon left it is all decayed to nitrogen 14 after 168 half-lives and this is from my own calculations um, no C14 remains then after 9,006 uh, or 962,640 years, so almost a million years, so just shy of a million years, the entire Earth would be a ball of nitrogen. There would not be even a single atom left of C14. This is very important to recognize this. When we start looking at things that still contain radiocarbon, which evolutionists claim are one to three billion years old not even a million billion years old so um, these timelines just don't make any sense if the earth uh, the earth would end up being an entire ball of nitrogen if it started off being a ball of c14 after um, a million years fossils here's the interesting thing when people um, if somebody sends in a fossil or coal or a fossil that has been fully mineralized still has organic material that which we can measure if it's been fully mineralized you can't see 14 dated and, and most fossils you can't date with carbon 14 but uh, there have been bones found of uh, non mineralized dinosaur bones have been found in fact there have been dinosaur bones found with uh, red blood cells still in them not mineralized uh, which uh, still yield, um, and we'll talk about that uh, actual finding also, which definitely limits their age and doesn't means that they are not 70 million years old. Uh, most evolutionary, evolutionists would claim that dinosaurs lived um, around 70, uh, 68 to 70 million years ago. Well, if they still contain radiocarbon within... Uh, those that we find that are not uh, fully mineralized fossils if we still find radiocarbon in them that can't be even according to the secular worldviews uh, time scale can't be older than 55,000 years it provides a limiting factor now if you would calculate into there the um, the the scale of of C14 to C12 ratio beginning at creation about six to seven thousand years ago to the present then those um, those measurements for for dinosaurs really matches exactly with the biblical scale and uh, we also find in coal um, we find carbon 14 uh, that yields ages also between 20 and 50,000 years and coal is said to also have been formed millions of years ago and takes millions of years to form according to evolutionists um, I do not believe that uh, at all coal has been proven to be able to be formed rapidly within the right conditions um, it just needs to be deprived of oxygen and have some pressure applied to it 
and coal will form in actually a very short period of time. And in fact, even with the eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington back in the early 80s, um, they have already found uh, coal formations uh, from that, uh, from uh, the bark that has fallen off the, the log um, uh, mats that were in the lake before that, the, the bark that fell to the bottom of the lake and was covered up um, are already uh, forming uh, coal. And uh, in laboratories, it's been proven that coal can be formed fairly rapidly. And so when you date coal uh, with using radiometric uh, or radiocarbon dating methods, uh, you find that they still contain radiocarbon, which gives dates between 20 to 50,000 years, once again, using the assumption of secular uh, uniformitarianism equilibrium. The other thing that um, is the most telling for um, a limit to the age of the Earth is diamonds. Diamonds are said by most evolutionists to be one to three billion years old. But yet uh, diamonds are compressed carbon. They are carbon that has been under high pressure. And so if we take a diamond and the rate project, um, which was a group of uh, Christian scientists that got together, and uh, they uh, did multiple uh, tests on diamonds for to see if they contained any radiocarbon. And diamonds consistently were dated to be less than or roughly around 50,000 years old, 50 to 50,000 years old, because there was detectable amounts uh, 10 times um, above the detection limit um, of radiocarbon found in diamonds, which makes no sense if, uh, if diamonds were... Uh, one to three billion years old, even in one million years, if that if that entire diamond was made up of carbon-14, well, it would have just turned to nitrogen. But um, if the entire thing was made up of carbon-14, it would have turned to um, nitrogen in, in uh, a fraction. Actually, it wouldn't have taken a million years. It takes something to the mass of the Earth. It would take that about a million years, but a diamond here is uh, much smaller. Take a very little amount of time if it was entirely made up of C14 to uh, to decay to nitrogen 14 within a very short amount of time and so there's uh, there's no way that these diamonds are actually that old now some of the arguments that evolutionists will make for like coal and fossils containing um, uh, carbon 14 is they'll say that uh, they were contaminated there was some sort of contamination that C14 got into um, the coal and into the fossil uh, somehow from external contamination, and that's what uh, gives those particular dates. The problem is with the, with the diamond, they can't say that because it's the hardest substance. It's impervious to contamination. Um, they'll, it's, they'll also claim with fossils and um, with fossils and with coal that if the fossil or, or coal contained any nitrogen, uh, nitrogen-14, if there's any uranium close by, um, it could release neutrons, which could bombard the nitrogen within that uh, fossil or coal and create C14 in that material. Well, while that's theoretically possible, uh, the issue is is that uh, the amount the the amount of C14 created from something like that is very small and is even less than the detection rate. So that doesn't really work. And the other thing is that doesn't work at all with with diamonds because diamonds don't contain any nitrogen. So if a diamond doesn't contain nitrogen, then there's no way for C14 to be created uh, within a diamond by the bombardment of neutrons from some external source like uranium. Now, uranium is a very rare substance on the Earth, so the fact that we find um, almost all uh, foss fossils and stuff, uh, dinosaur bones and things like that that contain, if you measure any of them, you find radiocarbon in them. If you measure any diamond, you find radiocarbon in it. Uh, that makes no sense. Uh, there must be uranium all over the world uh, in order to be uh, close to uh, these fossils and coal 
and diamonds it's it's a it's a stretch it's a uh, pretty weak rescuing device to try to to save uh, that particular uh, secular worldview um, from this particular evidence so the other thing that I want to talk about is atmospheric C14 equilibrium and I and I briefly uh, talked about that earlier when I when I brought up the scale the timeline from creation about how we as we as creationists would assume that the atmosphere was created pristine without any carbon-14 and carbon-14 was created post-creation due to cosmic radiation from the Sun uh, Dr. Uh, Will, uh, Willard Libby who is actually the founder of carbon-14 dated method uh, he actually said in a book uh, radiocarbon dating published by the University of Chicago Press he said on page 8 of that particular book he says if the cosmic radiation has remained at present intensity for 20 or 30,000 years um, and if the carbon reservoir has not changed appreciably in that time then there exists at the present time a complete balance between the rate of disintegration of radiocarbon atoms and the rate of assimilation of the new radiocarbon atoms for all material in the life cycle so basically what he's saying here if I can summarize you have the specific production rate of C14 uh, which is roughly around 18.8 uh, atoms per gram of total carbon per minute. That is the production rate. And the decay rate, known as the specific decay rate, is known to be only 16.1 disintegrations per gram per minute today. So that means that the production rate is greater than the decay rate, which means that the amount of C14 in the atmosphere is increasing. It hasn't reached equilibrium. And he himself admits in his own book it takes twenty to 30,000 years for it to reach equilibrium. So at the current rate, um, the current ratio of C14 to C12 is not a constant, but it is increasing. And it takes about 30,000 years, even according to Dr. Will, uh, Willard Libby himself, to reach a one-to-one -one ratio where the um, SPR, the production rate, and the SDR, the disintegration rate, are equal to one another. And at that point, uh, radiocarbon in the atmosphere would reach equilibrium, and there would be uh, no, it would just stay at a more stable rate. Um, if you take his own statements, then we are about one-third of the way right now to the twenty to 30,000 years it takes to reach that particular one-to-one -one ratio. So currently, the 1 to 10 to the 12th ratio that exists, the 1 to 1 trillion ratio that exists at the present day, is only about one-third of the way to equilibrium. So that fits very nicely into the biblical timescale. Fits very nicely into the biblical timescale. So uh, hopefully uh, that was <laughs> interesting to you. Hopefully that was not too boring. Um, let me switch back uh, back to me here. Um, uh, that is, you know, one of the things, radiocarbon dating is uh, often you'll hear uh, evolutionists, and I've encountered this so many times, I've heard uh, evolutionists completely uh, ignorant of radiocarbon dating even tell me, oh, yeah, there's no way radiocarbon dating has proven the Bible to be false. Well, <laughs> you can't even... Radiocarbon dating is the creationist's best friend. There is nothing for we as creationists to be afraid of with radiocarbon dating. It fits perfectly, actually. If you, if you bring biblical presuppositions to radiometric dating, it fits perfectly into the biblical time frames. Uh, it is not the tool of the evolutionists. There's many huge problems with radiometric dating. Um and the evolutionary time frames and you don't have these di difficulties within the creationist time frames so that is um, what uh, I guess we'll cover today on creation science uh, hopefully that was helpful to you I try to break it down uh, so that um, it's uh, more sim simple for the the non-scientist to understand I am NOT a scientist myself so I dumb it down to my own level and hopefully uh, that brings it down to the rest of us that are not uh, uh, scientists either uh, to understand it. So um, hopefully, like I said, that was helpful to you and encouraging to you. But remember, um, as Christians, 
the Bible is true uh, because God has spoken. It is God's word. He has spoken. It is true. We can trust it. Um, when there is evidence that appears to be contrary uh, to the biblical worldview, um, we as Christians should, uh, should hold to our presuppositions. Now, do I believe that most of the scientific evidence comports with biblical creation? Yes, I do believe that. Once you remove naturalistic assumptions from uh, the conclusions uh, of scientific evidence, uh, they fit very nicely into biblical creation. But the Bible is not true because science matches up with it. Science could only be done if the Bible itself was true. It goes the other way. So I uh, hope to see you guys next week. I think we're going to uh, have a friend of mine that attends my church that um, is into, he does a lot of uh, apologetics and witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's been a while since I've done an episode on the Jehovah's Witnesses. So we will uh, have, uh, his name is Wojtek, he's done some articles on the website. We're going to have him join in, I think, next week, if everything works out, um, to discuss uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then uh, sometime after that, uh, we'll jump back into this series, uh, continuing to discuss biblical creation and the scientific evidence for it. So, uh, Deo Valente, uh, we will see you guys next week. Lord willing, God bless. Through